0: Good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of James. The book of James. A funny way of remembering where the book of James is. My, my mom told me when I was young that uh, she don't know who he was, but he bruised James. So I always remember James comes right after Hebrews. The book of James. As you're turning there, I'd like to take a moment to extend the welcome that Brother Charles already gave out. It is so good and encouraging to see each and every one of you here, especially the, the many visitors we have. We hope that uh, you have felt welcome. We hope you know that you truly are an honored guest with us. And if you're just passing through, we are so glad that you chose to be with us. And If you're here from Nicholasville, we hope that maybe you might come back and join us again. This morning we are continuing a study that we started earlier in the year on fellowship. And we're going to actually bring it to a close uh, this morning and this evening. We have been looking over the time at our life together. Uh, We've noticed uh, topics such as intimacy and and interdependency that, that thrives in the fellowship that we have in the local church. We have examined various acts of worship and how they lend a hand in nurturing fellowship. And we've even looked at the concept of acceptance in Christ and how brotherly love relates to the fellowship that we share with one another. Today, I hope to, as we kind of wrap this up, I hope to do so through application. What is it we can do to enrich our life together? And what sort of things is it that we should just simply avoid? What sort of things should we have that we don't uh, that have a potential to disrupt our fellowship? And you know, there are many places that we can go in the New Testament. It is full uh, of passages that we can study to help us show what can be done to enrich our life together. And in some form or fashion, much of the New Testament is extremely helpful in this. But thanks to the providence of God, the epistle of James seems to have taken a lot of these things, a lot of these concepts, and wrapped them up in a, in a nice package for us. So that's what we're going to do this morning, is look at, at James and how it can re- the, the book here can relate to our fellowship. First thing I want to point out is in James 1.1, we see who the book is actually wrote to. It says, "...James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad." This led many to believe that this is written primarily to Christians who come out of the Jewish religion, to Judea, uh, Christians coming from Judaism. And, and we can be quite aware, though, that this book contains several bits of advice that are very helpful to our own society. Uh, The the book is written to Christians who find themselves living in a society of high mobility. It also finds itself written to a book of Christians who truly have not just a need for fellowship, but a felt need for fellowship. Christians who would have have forsaken their families. Uh, Coming out of Judaism, they would have had to turn their back on many of their friends, on on even possibly facing the, the aspect of death and on the aspect of being thrown out of the synagogues. Uh, So so we can see that this is a a book that is written to people that truly need this togetherness. And so let's begin by looking at things that we must not do, things that we must avoid if we are to enrich our, our lives together. And the first thing we find is in James 1, verse 21, James 1, verse 21, therefore Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The first thing we're going to look at is getting rid of immorality. It says all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. I thought that was such a a weird way for them to phrase this. Overflow of wickedness. Does Does that maybe say that there is a certain amount of wickedness that is acceptable? Just the overflow, the extra is what we have to get rid of. Uh, I looked at several different translations when I was studying this passage, and my favorite one just happened to be the King James Version. It talks about superfluity of naughtiness. Get rid of superfluity of naughtiness. And another word for superfluity is remnant, an excess. And when we look at who this book really is written to, when we look at Jewish Christians, he was saying this remnant of sin from that old life. Yes, your sins have been washed away in Christ, but anything you were holding on to from your old life, put that away. And put away the, the filthiness that has been in you. And we can see that what he's really saying is get rid of immorality. Get rid of immorality. And we see this in Ephesians. If you want to go ahead and mark in your book, James, because we are going to spend a great deal of time here. We fl- we'll flip around a little bit. In Ephesians 5, starting in verse 3, we see some things that, that Paul says are just not going to work inside the kingdom of, of, of Christ. Ephesians 3 says, "...but fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints." What he's saying is that this should not in any way describe anyone who claims to be a saint. Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. And he goes on to list some more. "...neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." For this, you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, which is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or God. And God. So he lists these things, uh, these lists of immorality. I really want to say immortality with that word. I don't know why. With these lists, all this immorality. It says that this is not going to be a part of the kingdom of God. You're not going to find this. And if you are to be in the, the kingdom of God, you're going to have to get rid of these things. In fact, in Proverbs chapter six, we read a little bit more about the dangers of immorality. In Proverbs six, starting in verse twenty-seven, and I've got twenty-seven through thirty-five, but I just want to focus on the the few chapters right there at twenty, or the few verses right around twenty-seven. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. We see that Im- immorality not only affects us on an on a individual level, but immorality affects us as a whole. It has a devastating effect on the group. It says a man that picks up hot coals and puts them in his lap, it doesn't just burn his lap, but even his clothes are burned. And sometimes as Christians, we, have this, we make this mistake of saying, well, I didn't think it was going to bother anybody else. I didn't think that it would affect anybody else. Some little sin in our life, well, maybe it's, it's a lie, or maybe it's a night out drinking, there's some sort of sin that we think, well, that don't affect anybody but me. But that's not the case. That's not what the proverb writer says. It is sin, immorality, it, it has this, this effect where it spreads. I heard a story one time of a man who was on a train. I believe it was up in New York. He was traveling down the rails, and he had to go to the bathroom. He went back to where the toilet was, and as he was using the bathroom, getting ready to flush it, and his phone fell in the toilet. And I think we've all probably know somebody that experienced that just devastating event. Uh, But he kind of looked at it and thought, well, nobody's going to know about it. I'll just reach in there and get it and pull it out. It won't affect anybody. So he reached in there and got the phone. Well, his hand got stuck. And so the conductor come back and was beating on the door and wanting to come in. And he said, you can't come in, my hand's stuck. And they had to stop that train. And because that train stopped, they had to stop trains going in every single direction to get this man. They had to go in, they had to cut the toilet out to get this man's hand unstuck. And he came out and they said, well, why'd you do it? And he said, well, I didn't think it would bother anybody but me. But it affected the whole, it affected trains in all sorts of directions. We can see how one thing can have rippling effects. Into, into the community, but especially into our, our own fellowship with one another. We can see how immorality can destroy fellowship uh, that we have in Christ. The next thing we see in James is in James chapter 2. James chapter 2 starting in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the, Lord, uh, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, well, you stand here, you stand there, or you sit here at my footstool. <clears throat> Have you not shown partiality among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. But you have dishonored the poor men. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now how often is it that, that we do this exact same thing? By showing respect of persons, whether it be through partiality, or, or much worse, through bigotry, through a discrimination, racism. And that makes us a sinner before God, as James 2.9 says. See, we ought not to think of a person and, and in the context of where they are in their life. Whether they be rich, or whether they be poor, or black, or white, male or female, but rather what we see here is we should be a respecter of the soul. It's not the person that we should be respecting, it's who the person came from that we should be respecting. In fact, Luke 17.10 goes on to tell us a little bit about what God truly thinks of us. When Jesus says that even if we do everything that the Lord commands, are we not still unprofitable servants? And we stop and think about that. Even if I do everything that the Lord commands... I'm still unprofitable. I'm still just a, a servant doing what is required of me. I'm no different than any one of you in this room. And even if you do everything the Lord commands, you're really no different than any other, any other one of us. And sometimes we read this and we can kind of get down on ourselves a little bit and think, well, wow, that maybe means God doesn't think much of me. I'm just an unprofitable servant. And look at how much He's called me to do and I'm just an unprofitable servant. And that's not what this was about. God was not trying to show us exactly how much He doesn't love us. What He was trying to show us is how we should view one another. If you turn over to John 4, He shows us exactly how much He did love us. In John 4 verse 9, we read, In this the love of God was manifested towards us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him doesn't matter what color I am. It doesn't matter how rich or poor I am. God has sent His Son for every one of us. And in verse 10 it says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now tying this back to not being a partiality, we see verse 11 that really... And just, just go straight, uh, straight to the point. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We are not to be partial. Fellowship in Christ is not designed to divide us, fellowship in Christ was designed to bring us together. The next thing we see is something to avoid, it's found in James 3, and that's the misuse of the tongue. In James chapter 3, and verse 1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bride the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. And look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear uh, bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. The tongue truly does possess great power. Great power. In fact, we see the power not only to lift up, but we see the power to destroy. As James was telling us, if we are not careful, that is exactly what the tongue will be used for. And we misuse the tongue to curse men. It reveals a shallowness of our praise to God. You know, this morning we have been led in several ways of, pra- uh, of praise. Carl has led us in songs. Logan led us in, a, in a prayer. And, and uh, Jim led us as we, as we took of the Lord's Supper. And we praise God. But what does our tongue truly reveal about that praise to God? If we turn around on Monday or maybe possibly even later this afternoon, and with the same tongue that praised God, we also are cursing men. We're telling, as it talked earlier, this, this filthy talk, the, the coarse jesting. We're spewing out hate. What are we really saying about our praise to God? <clears throat> Maybe you've heard this old saying. I'm sure there's some of you that, that, that may have heard this before. It might be familiar. Loose lips sink ships. That was a phrase from the Navy. And as, as Brother Charles has told me several times, there's no ship better than the Good Ship Fellowship. Loose lips can have the same effect on our, our fellowship and on the, the peace of the congregation. Let us make sure that we are doing everything we can to avoid the misuse of the tongue. In James four one, we see another thing to avoid, and that is selfishness. In one, word, in one verse where we read, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure than, uh, that war in your members? And James reveals that the root cause of a lot of the strife that we have in this life comes from nothing more than our own selfish desires. What's best for me? In fact, he goes back in James three sixteen. He says more about it. For where envy and self seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So if we truly desire peace and truly desire harmony in our fellowship, we're going to have to grow up. We're going to have to grow beyond the the inward focus of our youth and our carnality. And you know, I couldn't help but think of my boys. They're selfish. They are, I have a son that's six, a son that's four, and a son that's two. And, and as was mentioned earlier, they are traveling, and I do appreciate your prayers because it's really going to be quiet. Not only do I hope that they're safe in their travels and they have a good time, but it's going to be very quiet in my house these next couple of days, and I just hope I don't go mad. But they truly are, as I look at them and was I was thinking about this, They are selfish. Now granted, the six-year-old, he is coming around. Ryder is starting to learn not to think about himself and thinks very highly of others a lot of times. And his example is is really starting to fuel Easton, my four-year-old. And he's starting to think about ways that he can help others and always wants to try to give a compliment to his mother. But that two-year-old, if he sees it and he wants it, he's going to end up with it if he can. And if he has it and somebody else wants it, he don't care. It's his. It's in his hand. He wants it. He hasn't, tr- he hasn't quite got there yet. And we're working with him. But we see that in the youth, we have this selfishness that we have to try and overcome. But at what point in our life do we revert back to that two-year-old state? At what point in our life do we revert back to begin thinking of ourself again? I'm guilty of it. Every one of us in here is guilty of it of thinking of ourselves in ways. And what James is telling us here is that selfish thinking, we need to get rid of that. Because that is the root of the strife that we can face in our fellowship. Another thing that he points out, uh, still in chapter 4, is uh, the speaking evil of one another. In verse 11 he says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Excuse me. What we see here is we learn that speaking evil of one another is actually speaking evil of the law and judging the law. That is something that we obviously do not wish to be guilty of. In fact, I even think of Michael and Jude in Jude, it talks about Michael contending with the devil over the uh, the body of Moses. And he says that he wouldn't even condemn the devil, but rather said, the Lord rebuke you. We also, ought to set our, we also ought not to set ourselves up as judges when there really is only one judge and lawgiver. That verse 12, some translations say there is one lawgiver and judge. We need to also remember that. Now this does not preclude the necessity to, to judge with righteous judgment, as John 7.24 says, Nor that we cannot judge those who are inside the family of God, as 1 Corinthians 5 says. But too often, we can become guilty of judging others according to our personal standards. Not to the standard that's been given to us through the Bible, but by what we think. I've tried so oftentimes to tell people when I'm talking to them, it doesn't matter what I think. And it doesn't matter what you think, it doesn't matter what you feel, or what, what you believe, what matters when coming to the standard that we have is what God has said in His Word. And we need to make sure that we are not judging others according to what we have wrote in this book, according to what we have, have placed as a law. Because in doing so, not only do we judge them, but we judge the law, and we speak evil of others. So these five things, these five things can prevent a congregation from enjoying a life together, the life that Christ intended for His church. So let's be diligent to never allow them to infect the relationship that we have. And that's exactly what sin is, an infection. It's a sickness. And it's like an infection that once it starts, it grows and everything it touches dies. So let's make sure that we are doing our best never to let this infect the relationship we have. But at the same time, let's not be content with just setting back, fighting off the infection. Let's be proactive. Let's reach forward to build fellowship. And again, James counsels us in what we can do. If you turn back to James 1.24, we're going to see some things to do in regards to enriching our fellowship. In the very first passages of the book, James 1, two. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. View challenges as opportunities. Is what James is saying here. Possessing a positive perspective about difficulties is good for congregations, and it's good for individuals as well. We've heard this probably several times. If you've ever been through any sort of, of training to, to better yourself, whether it be like a sales training to become better at sales, or become better at managing things, the key that a lot of times is stressed is positive thinking. Not to be sitting around looking at things negatively, but trying to find the positiveness in it. Any church that is growing will likely experience problems. And that is our desire here, and we have obviously seen that there has been some growth in the past. But we desire to grow more, and we can expect that in that growth we're eventually going to have problems. We're humans. You know, if I haven't done it already, more than likely I'm eventually going to say something that's going to rub you the wrong way. And even though it hasn't happened already, more than likely eventually somebody here will say something that will rub me the wrong way. And we need to make sure that when, ex- when problems arise, that we view them as an opportunity. Just like in a marriage... How many times, and I don't even want to look at, at, at Hollywood, how many times marriages have, have failed in Hollywood because of this, but how many times have you possibly seen someone that you know or, or a relationship that you're aware of where a couple gets married and they just have this, this burning desire. They're, they're living off the, the fuzziness of this new marriage. And they start to see kind of problems arising. Maybe, maybe it's, well, I didn't know she snored. I don't much care for that. Or maybe she's going, I didn't know he didn't put the dishes in the sink. Or maybe he does put the dishes in the sink, but he leaves all the food on them and doesn't scrape it in the trash. Or maybe he's thinking, well, I didn't know she couldn't cook as good as I thought she could. When these problems arise, and and the first thing sometimes people go is, this ain't going to work. That spark that we had, it's gone. I don't love you anymore. And and things slowly start to drift away, sometimes quicker, uh, more, more quickly than slowly. But how great is it when a couple looks at each other and goes, okay, problems arise. I don't like this about you. And that's okay. Because I love you. And I love you not because you make me feel a certain way. I love you because you're the person I want to spend my life with. And I want to help you get to heaven. And I want you to help me get to heaven. So I'm going to look at this as an opportunity to practice the fruit that is within me. I'm going to look at this as an opportunity to practice love or joy or patience I'm going to work my best in this bad situation to make it better. A congregation can do the same thing and we will see nothing but strength come out of that. When there's someone that just rubs us the wrong way, and we've all met those people, someone that we just don't click with at a congregation, and sometimes it's, well, I just I don't want to say hi to them. I'm going to go sit on the other side of the church building and, and maybe I can kind of sneak past them on the way out and get by with not having to deal with them. That's not the attitude we should have. Let's look for opportunities. To, to be able to view a challenge as an opportunity to express the fruits that are within us. The next thing James teaches us is found in verse 5-8. through 8, and, and the moral here is just pray, pray, pray. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not the man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. To be able to maintain a thriving fellowship on the congregation, it's going to require prayer. It's going to require prayer and a lot of prayer, but it's going to require specifically prayer for wisdom. Wisdom in in our speech, wisdom in our actions, wisdom in how we make decisions as the congregation moves forward. And so just as individuals, we should be seeking wisdom from God. As a congregation, we should be seeking wisdom for God and the decisions we make. And then going on in verse 9, we see that we should also maintain proper perspectives about our situation. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flowers fall, And its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Oftentimes fellowship, it becomes disrupted by envy and pride. Envy over what I don't have that someone else does. Or maybe pride about what I do have that others don't. But God gives us a reason to be thankful no matter what our situation is, because it's what He sees in us. If all the members are willing to see themselves as God sees them, There will be no room for this envy or pride. If every member is truly able to to see that God looked down on each one of us and made a decision, a decision that should have been, I'm going to wipe them off the earth, but rather looked down at everyone and said, I'm going to do what I can to save them. I'm going to give them an opportunity. And we should truly be able to see the love and and the the high magnitude that God sets us at. And in doing so, we should be able to, to not look at another and realize that we're any better than them, but look at another and say, God sees me in this light, and He sees that person, and that person, and that person in the exact same light. And, that, and when we look at things in that filter, there, there's no more of this opportunity to think that I'm greater, or to think that I'm less than another person. The next thing we see is in verse 19 and 20. Something that I work on diligently. Diligently. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let us be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. What we find out is poor communication and short tempers will quickly destroy any relationship. I remember a time when we were, we were camping down in, in Pigeon Forge. And I don't remember the name of the campground, but it's the very last one on the left as you're going out of Pigeon Forge, getting ready to go into the, into the forest between there and Gatlinburg. And I remember staying, we used to go down there every year. And one year, we was riding around on our bikes, and we found a, a big pile of firecrackers. And there's these kind of firecrackers that are usually several of them in, in a package, and you light one fuse and throw it, and they just keep going until they're all gone. Well, apparently that's not what happened here, because half of them hadn't been detonated yet. And so we pick these firecrackers up and we kind of sneak back to the camper and we find the lighter and we run off to the back end of this campground with all the other little boys and girls that we've met over this, this camping trip and we're all back there lightening these fuses and throwing them off. Now the thing about these firecrackers is the main fuse, it's a green fuse that burns, If I, I have some of this fuse at the house, it burns I believe at about an inch a second so if you have three inches, you have three seconds to throw that firecracker. But it ties into a white fuse, which is called a fast-burning visco. And it, it burns at a meter a second. So about this much, and it's gone. That white fuse is hard to light and get rid of before it blows up. And a lot of times, you end up getting hurt. <laughs> and somehow, I don't have scars, but, but we got hurt a lot on that camping trip. Sometimes in our life, we are like that white fuse. And we need not be. Sometimes it doesn't take very much to set off. That's the other thing about that white fuse. You can't light it and get away from it without getting burnt. Because it burns really hot to burn that fast. Sometimes in life, it doesn't take much to set us off. And when we do, watch out. We're ready. We're ready to fight. And it just, it, everything is getting ready to blow up. And people are going to get hurt. And that's what James is saying. Just don't be like that. Think about things. Really listen to what people are saying. And be slow to speak. Consider your words. As you prayed for wisdom earlier, use wisdom in your speech. And then be slow to wrath. Have patience. If we will apply this trifold of grace, problems can be handled and overcome in such a better way than when we just explode when a problem lands in our lap. And then in James 1.22 We read, practice pure and undefiled religion. Reading in verse 22-27, through But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work... This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religious is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So this involves each and every one of us. This involves us on an individual level. This being doers of the word and not hearers, that tells us to let our actions speak louder than our words. We're saying a lot here this morning. By choosing to come here on a beautiful Sunday uh, morning, we are saying a lot. But what are our actions going to say? Are we going to be like the man that looks in the mirror and forgets himself? Are we going to go back out into the world and and show a different type of person? Are we going to attend to the needs of the less fortunate? As, uh, As Jim was talking about this morning, we truly don't have that many poor people But we have a lot of people that are suffering. We have a lot of people that may be less uh, less off than us. And are we truly going to look at them and say, Well, I hope you are filled, but do nothing. I hope you are warmed, but do nothing to warm them. Are we going to keep ourselves untainted by the world? Because wouldn't it be wonderful to have the fellowship in a congregation where all were true practicers, practitioners of this kind of religion? If everyone truly practiced what they preached, what they are preaching when they show up to services to say, I, I, I believe in God and I'm going to be obedient to God, wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody truly practiced that when they say that? The next thing we see is in James 3. <clears throat> in James 3 we read to demonstrate our wisdom by our conduct. Looking in verse 13 first, "...who is wise and understanding among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom." And in verse 17, "...but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." Again, this is just simply saying we need to let our actions speak louder than our words. But note especially in verse 17. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be in a congregation filled with people who demonstrated this kind of wisdom? Wisdom that was first pure. Wisdom that was from above. But wisdom that was peaceable and gentle and willing to yield. That's one of my favorite parts of that passage. Wisdom that's willing to yield. I might know a better way, but am I going to fight and claw to get my way or am I going to yield to what's best for the congregation? Now, I just say, with, with being pure and first, we have to stand for the truth. But are we willing to, be, to yield and to be peaceable? Are we willing to be full of mercy and of good fruits and without partiality and without hypocrisy? We are to pray for one another. In James 5, in verse 13 we read, "...is anyone among you suffering?" Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. When we are praying for others, it's hard to be angry at them. I remember a story that Brother Sandusky told. Uh, Gary Sandusky was doing a meeting in Lexington one time. and He told this story about a, a, a men's meeting where these two brothers just were not getting along. And there was something going on, and it had come to the point that in this men's meeting, they couldn't even get down and talk about the business at hand because these two brothers just were, were arguing and bickering so much. And finally, Gary, Gary stood up and said, I, I think, brother, we, we can't go on until we solve this. He said, you, I want you to pray for your brother over here. So that, he, that maybe He won't be so angry with you. And you, when, you get done, or when He gets done praying, I just want you to pick up where He left off and pray for Him. That He won't be so angry. And that we can get along peaceably. And they said for a moment, they sat real quiet and nobody said a word. Finally, the one bro- brother stood up and he said, I can't say that prayer. I can't go to God right now because I'm not in the right frame of mind. What I'm doing is wrong. When I'm fighting with my brother, it's wrong. And what he was saying was, it's hard for me to be angry at him if I'm going to pray for him. And if I'm going to pray for Him, I can't be angry at Him. When we know others are praying for us, the same thing goes the opposite way. It's hard for us not to love them. We know that someone is saying a prayer on our behalf. We know that they truly care for us, and they're going to the one that that can truly solve any problem that we have on our behalf. And we are praying for each other. Not only is our fellowship with God strengthened, but also our fellowship with one another. And finally, the last thing we see in James we see that we need to be restoring one another. We see this in verses uh, 19-20. through Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns uh, turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. When people stray from the faith, we lose the benefit of their fellowship with us. So restoring them back to God not only saves them, but it also it renews our fellowship. It helps to enrich and build the fellowship that we have that we had lost in that relationship. So this is meant to have been just a quick survey of the epistle of James. There is so much more in here that is, that is good for our enriching our lives together. In fact, there is so much more in the entire New Testament with admonitions not only to enhance our relationship with God... But also to enhance our relationship with one another. So I encourage you not to just leave this to this morning, but to go uh, as you go home and to study this on your own and to look at what God says about our relationships that we have. That is to say, let the Word of God be our guide to, to creating and maintaining our life together. <clears throat> if we were to just simply boil down James, what we would have left is a message that says, you can do this. You can do this if you are willing to get in and get your hands dirty. If you are willing to work towards it. And as I was studying James, I couldn't help but think of this song. I'm going to embarrass myself here for a minute. But this song that I sing with the boys sometimes. I'm wrapped up. I'm tied up. I'm tangled up with Jesus. I'm wrapped up. I'm tied up. I'm tangled up with God. There's a whole lot of hand signals that go with that. But the main point of that is I am in this. If I am wrapped up in it, If I'm really tangled up in there, and if we are tangled up together in this, nothing's going to pull us apart. Nothing is going to separate us. The devil would have to completely rip everything end to end to be able to get us apart. And if we're wrapped up in God and in Jesus, there's nothing that we can't do. We will see growth. We will see spiritual growth. We will see numerical growth as long as we are willing to continue to always work at it together. So I want to ask you this morning. How about your relationship with God? Are you a child of God? You know, in Galatians 3, it says that you can be a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It says that all that were baptized were baptized into his name. Have you chosen that life? Have you chosen to become a child of God this morning? Because if you if you haven't, the cold truth is you. Fellowship isn't the thing that you need to be worrying about the most. Fellowship with us, it's that fellowship with God. Without choosing to follow Him and be obedient to His Word, there's a barrier, there's a separation between you and God. But that's something that you can take care of this morning. That's something that you can take care of through simply confessing that you believe that He is the Son of God. And as you are willing to repent of the sins in your life, you are willing to turn away, to do a 180, and to go and head towards Him, towards His life, and showing that uh, through obedience to His command to be baptized for the remission of those sins. But maybe you've already done that. Maybe you've already made that commitment, but somehow sin has crept into your life and has separated you again from God. And you need that nearness. You need to be drawn back to Him. Well, in James 5.16, we read the solution to that already to confess your sins to one another. If there there is anything that we can do for you this morning, I ask that you please consider the, the, the position that you are in and that if you need to, come forward as we stand and sing.